As mankind have advanced in intelligence, their inferential habits have come gradually nearer to agreement with the laws of nature, which have made these habits throughout more often a source of true expectations than of false ones. The forming of inferential habits, which, led to true, which lead to true expectations, is part of the adaptation to the environment upon which biological survival depends. But although our postulates can in this way be fitted into a framework which has what we may call an empiricist flavor, it remains undeniable that our knowledge of them, insofar as we do know them, cannot be based upon experience, though all their verifiable consequences are such as experience will confirm. In this sense, it must be admitted, empiricism as a theory of knowledge has proved inadequate, though less so than any other previous theory of knowledge. Indeed, such inadequacies as we have seemed to find in empiricism have been discovered by strict adherence to a doctrine by which empiricist philosophy has been inspired, that all human knowledge is uncertain, inexact, and partial. To this doctrine we have not found any limitation whatever. This is Retrace. It's September 7th, 2020 a Monday. That was Bertrand Russell from his Human Knowledge, Its Scope and Limits, first published in 1948. Retrace is a private company started by individuals who want to do a certain kind of work. Retrace has no other financial backers. It's as independent as a new company can be. The kind of work we do is a response to the question, What's going on out there? And the kind of thing we sell is what you're hearing right now. Today, we're going to talk about our point of departure, intelligence, and the immediate presence of danger that follows. So if we want to know what's going on out there, a good point of departure is to look at the meaning of the word intelligence. For our purposes, we can distinguish at least three ways the word is used. Natural intelligence, artificial intelligence, and what we might call strategic intelligence. So, natural intelligence is, let's say, what animals and humans and groups of humans have, or what they do, what makes them different from their surroundings. Artificial intelligence is, let's say, whatever it is that makes certain machines and computers seem to know things and to act like they know things. Now, strategic intelligence, let's say, is espionage, counter-espionage, and covert action. For example, two competing groups keeping and stealing each other's secrets. We can justify using the term strategic intelligence by pointing out that the precursor to the American CIA, built during World War II by William Donovan, was called the Office of Strategic Services, an organization that conducted espionage, counter-espionage, and covert action. And for more on that, you can see Lowenthal's textbook, Intelligence from Secrets to Policy, 8th edition, page, pages 20 to 21. 
uh, will re- reluctantly adapt the term um, or adopt the, the term uh, strategic intelligence to cover all of these phenomena and to distinguish them from natural and artificial intelligence. And it's important to note that strategic intelligence is not the exclusive domain of government entities. Each kind of intelligence, natural, artificial, and strategic, is powerful, and each can make use of, if not subordinate, the other two. But they seem, at a glance, to be very different from each other. So, let's make that glance. Uh, Let's start with natural intelligence, and let's consider the neuroscientist Michael O'Shea writing in 2005 in his uh, very short introduction to the brain. He's writing about someone else, Santiago Ramon y Cajal, Cajal, who is arguably the father of modern neuroscience, according to Shane. O'Shea. And he says this, Cajal was fascinated by the differences between the brains of markedly different organisms, human, worms, snails, insects, and so on. He thought comparisons of their brains might be instructive precisely because vastly, vast differences exist between the behavior and intellectual capabilities of different creatures. There is unquestionably an enormous gulf between human and insect intelligence, so it would be reasonable to suppose that a comparison of their brains would expose how structural components reflect intelligence. Surely the human brain should contain high-performance components, and the insect brain markedly less sophisticated ones. But the difference between insect and human neurons does not at all betray the gulf between insect and human intelligence. Insect neurons are as complex and display as much diversity as neurons in the human cortex. Brains of the most advanced insects, honeybees, have about 1 million neurons, snails about 20,000, and primitive worms, nematodes, about 300. Contrast these numbers with the 100 billion or so that are required for human-level intelligence. But the individual neurons of simple organisms operate with the very same electrical and chemical signaling machinery found in today's most advanced brains. Like it or not, the astonishing conclusion from comparative studies is that the evolution of our brains, capable of such extraordinary feats, did not require the evolution of superneurons. The basic cellular components of mental functions are pretty much the same in all animals, the humble and the human. So much for natural intelligence. What about artificial intelligence? Let's listen to the philosophers Paul and Patricia Churchland, and they're writing in the year 2000 in a foreword to the second edition of um, Johnny von Neumann's The Computer and the Brain. Here's what they say. It is the acquired global configuration of those many millions, nay, trillions, of synaptic connections that embodies whatever knowledge and skills the brain may have acquired. And it is those same synaptic connections that so swiftly perform 
the computational transformations upon any axonal inputs from the senses, for example, that arrive at their collective doorstep. This yields both the speed and the freedom from recursively amplified errors that von Neumann deemed essential. It must be quickly said, it must quickly be said, however, that this decisive insight does nothing to dim the integrity of his digital and serial technologies, nor does it dim our hopes for creating artificial intelligence. Quite the contrary. We can make electronic versions of synaptic connections, and eschewing the classical von Neumann architecture, we can create vast parallel networks of artificial neurons, thus realizing electronic versions of the shallow depth but extraordinary breadth computational regime evidently exploited by the brain. These will have the additional and most intriguing property of being roughly 10 to the 6th times faster overall than their biological namesakes, simply because they will have electronic rather than biochemical components. This means many things. For one, a synapse-for-synapse electronic duplicate of your biological brain could enjoy, in only 30 seconds, a train of thought that would consume a year's time as conducted by the components within your own skull. And that same machine could enjoy in a half an hour an intellectual life that would consume your entire three score and ten years if conducted within your own brain. Intelligence clearly has an interesting future. So much for natural and artificial intelligence. What about strategic intelligence? We're going to hear from the historian Neil Ferguson writing in 2017 about the 19th century Rothschild's banking family. And uh, Ferguson has written extensively about the Rothschilds. He's written a two-volume history of them. Um, But this is not from that history. This is a later book called The Square and the Tower. And we're going to – it's worth quoting him at length to get a feel for strategic intelligence. One of the crucial ways in which the Rothschilds endeared themselves to the political elite, as well as outdoing their business competitors, was by having an exceptional intelligence and communications network. In this period, postal services were slow and insecure. Letters sent from Paris to Frankfurt usually took just 48 hours in 1814, but mail from London could take up to a week to reach Frankfurt and the service from Paris to Berlin took nine days in 1817. Compulsive correspondents as they were, the brothers soon dispensed with the post, relying instead on their own private couriers, including agents at Dover, who were authorized to charter boats for the Rothschild's business. It has long been believed that that Nathan Rothschild was the first man in London to learn the news of Napoleon's defeat at Waterloo thanks to the speed with which a Rothschild courier was able to relay the fifth and conclusive extraordinary bulletin issued in Brussels during the night of 1819 June via Dunkirk and Deal to reach Newcourt roughly 24 hours later, at least 36 hours before Major Henry Percy delivered Wellington's official dispatch to the cabinet. Doubt has recently been cast on this story, but the fact remains that Rothschild 
receive the news early enough, even if it was on 21st of June, to do well by the early information of the victory. A report of the battle's outcome was sent later that day by the London correspondent of the Caledonian Mercury, who cited as his source a good authority, one who has seen a letter from Ghent received by Rothschild, the great stockbroker whose information is invariably the best. By the mid-1820s, the Rothschilds were making regular use of private couriers. In December 1825 alone, the Paris house, the Paris house of Rothschild, they had multiple houses, the Paris house sent 18 couriers to Calais and hence to London, three to Saarbrücken, one to Brussels and one to Naples. From 1824, carrier pigeons were also used, though the brothers do not seem to have relied on these as much as sometimes has been assumed. He goes on, Major political events, as well as confidential information, could be relayed from one city to another, well ahead of official channels. It was not long before statesmen and diplomats began themselves to make use of the Rothschilds' network of communication, partly because it was quicker than the official courier system used for relaying diplomatic correspondence, but also because messages of a non-binding nature could be sent from government to government indirectly via the brothers' own private correspondence. Of course, if the Rothschilds had relied solely on their own five houses for intelligence, the system would have been very limited. But they soon developed a reach that, had, that extended far beyond their original European bases, as none of Mayor Amschel's grandsons wished or was allowed to establish a new house, this was done by building up a select group of salaried agents employed to take care of the bank's interests in other markets, principally Madrid, St. Petersburg, Saint, uh, Saint Petersburg uh, Brussels, and later New York, New Orleans, Savannah, Mexico, and San Francisco. The lines of communication with these agents formed a complex new intelligence and business network. Men such as August Belmont in New York or Daniel Weisweiler in Madrid inevitably enjoyed considerable autonomy because of their remoteness and their greater local knowledge. However, they always remained Rothschild agents, first and foremost, and were not allowed to forget it. Nor was this network of formal influence all. Of comparable importance was the, la was the larger but looser network of links to other banks, as well as to stockbrokers, central banks, and financial newspapers. So, we've glanced at natural, artificial, and strategic intelligence, but you may detect... Um, a sort of uneasiness in the third stage of that glance. Strategic intelligence carries this with it. We talk about the nature of animals with brains, the nature of the neurons that make up those brains. So far, so good. We talk about artificial intelligence, even the future of artificial intelligence, so far, so good. We talk about strategic intelligence, whatever that term means as we're using it, and we're into a gray area. Outsiders who speculate about likely secrets, like those that are known to be kept by intelligence organizations, 
and unlikely secrets, like those claimed by some so-called conspiracy theorists, are on dangerous ground to include this podcast. The subject of espionage and terms such as UFO or ESP or even conspiracy itself are rightly so intellectual and therefore reputational minefields. If a person's thinking is so loose and excitable that he or she will believe almost anything, it's obvious that problems will soon follow. Even physical safety might eventually become hard for such a person to achieve with such ways of thinking. But it is always possible that a given unlikely secret is really being kept. Think of the Manhattan Project. And to dismiss them all would be to accept large attentional blind spots. And another reason to take the hazardous subjects seriously is that they provide a constant test of one's mettle, of whether one's methods of thinking have become too lax or too weak or too mushy. So with these things in mind, let's get some reminders about the careful thinking that we want to do and also thinking carelessly. We go back to Bertrand Russell. We opened with an excerpt from the end of his book, Human Knowledge. But let's see if he can answer the question for us, what is knowledge? This is on page 516 of the same book. Knowledge, as we have seen, is a term incapable of precision. All knowledge is, in some degree, doubtful, and we cannot say what degree of doubtfulness makes it cease to be knowledge any more than we can say how much loss of hair makes a man bald. It's a good way to remember it. Uh, well, what about evidence? If we're, if we're going to move through all of the, the reminders, the guardrails, or lack thereof, we start with the term knowledge. What about evidence? Paul Horwich uh, has a book um, uh, published in 1982, Probability and Evidence. And in his uh, first chapter on methodology, he explains his purposes this way. Um, the book's purpose is to explore scientific methodology in light of the obvious yet frequently neglected fact that belief is not an all-or-nothing matter, but is susceptible to varying degrees of intensity. More specifically, my main object is to exploit this fact to treat certain well-known puzzles in the philosophy of science, such as the problem of induction and the paradox of confirmation, as well as questions about ad hoc postulates, the tenability of realism, st statistical testing, the relative merits of predication, uh, prediction and uh, accommodation, a special quality of very data, and the evidential value of further information. My second aim is to display the extent to which diverse elements of scientific method may be unified and justified by means of the concept of subjective probability. All right, there's a lot packed into that excerpt, and there's no need to unpack it. The point is um, that we have the reminder that belief is not an all-or-nothing matter. It is not whether you believe something or don't. It is 
a matter of varying degrees of intensity, and that there is a counterpart to that obvious fact, and it might be captured by the, the idea of using subjective probability. Okay, so that's a brief glance at evidence. What about the, the ultimate failure, a logical fallacy? C.L. Hamblin wrote in 1970 a book by that name, Fallacies, um, and he'll just give us a brief reminder of what a fallacy is in, uh, at the beginning of chapter 7. A fallacy is a fallacious argument. Someone who merely makes false statements, however absurd, is innocent of fallacy unless the statements constitute or express an argument. In one of its ordinary uses, of course, the word fallacy means little more than false belief, but this use does not concern us. In logical tradition, a fallacy may be made up even out of true statements if they occur in proper form. That is, if they constitute or express an argument that seems valid but is not. An argument that seems valid but is not. Anthony Weston has written several editions of a book called A Rule Book for Arguments. This is from the third edition, the chapter entitled Fallacies. He says there are two great fallacies, and I don't think he means that there are two big ones and then a bunch of small ones. I think it could be properly interpreted as two categories of fallacy, although Hamblin, who we just heard from, We'll have lots more to say about that uh, to us in the future. But this is from the third edition, page 71. One of our most common temptations is to draw conclusions from too little evidence. For example, if the first Lithuanian, the first meet, oh, I'm sorry, uh, if the first Lithuanian I meet has a fiery temper, I might jump to the conclusion that all Lithuanians have fiery tempers. If one ship disappears in the Bermuda Triangle, the National Enquirer proclaims the Bermuda Triangle haunted. This is the fallacy of generalizing from incomplete information. And then he goes on to tell us the second great fallacy. A second common fallacy is overlooking alternatives. Rules 20 through 23, and this is a rule book, remember, he's numbered the rules. Rules 20 through 23 pointed out that just because events A and B are correlated, it does not follow that A, A causes B. B could cause A. Something else could cause both A and B. A may cause B and B may cause A, or A and B might not even be related. These alternative explanations may be overlooked if you accept the first explanation that occurs to you. Don't rush. There are usually many more alternative explanations than you think. Okay, so we've had um, an injection of vegetables to offset the ice cream of conspiracy theories and exotic claimed phenomena in the world of strategic intelligence. It might be safe to continue. We won't know for sure. 
but let's let's look at the secrets, likely and unlikely, before we close out this initial discussion of intelligence. Uh, there's an astronomer turned computer scientist named Jacques Vallée, and he's written a lot about UFOs or the UFO phenomenon because he doesn't necessarily accept any particular explanation of what they are or if they're anything tangible. In 1979, he wrote Messengers of Deception. And this is, this excerpt is from that book on page, it starts on page 66. The handwriting on the walls of the Paris subway ranges from the slogans of Maoism to the profanity of scatology, and I do not ordinarily spend much time studying it. However, when I found the scribbled announcement that the Lord is an extraterrestrial, allegedly emanating from a mysterious order of Melchizedek, I had to stop and take notice. I had urged scientists to do serious research on the phenomenon of UFOs before it was swept away by fanaticism. If I had been asked to name the part of the world where fanatical saucer sects might arise, I would have said California, without a second thought. In Los Angeles, perhaps, or in some commune near Mendocino, in a small town on the edge of the Mojave Desert, near the hills where Adamski claimed to have met his Venusians, certainly not in Paris, not in the subway, in full view of hundreds of thousands of men and women who walked by this yellow poster every day, carrying serious, rationalistic, cynical newspapers like Le Monde under their arms. In Paris it was, however, and the note in black felt-tip marker was written not once but many times on the walls of several tunnels. The work of some insane person? Perhaps. But the signature suggested a group, an organization, the Order of Melchizedek. I decided to investigate. The next day I met Sinna and Ivan, two leaders of that sect, in their cluttered apartment. Later, bent on learning more than superficial acquaintance with the group could reveal, I joined their organization and delved into its history. What I found is wonderful and strange, and sometimes funny, as this book will show. I admit that the work I thus undertook represents a departure from the theme of scientific analysis of UFO sightings that I have advanced in previous writings. I still believe such an analysis to be necessary. Scientific analysis will undoubtedly provide part of the truth about UFOs. However, I no longer believe it will lead to the whole truth. I owe this realization to a man I shall call Major Murphy, although his actual rank is much higher than that of Major. He taught me a lesson I am not likely to forget. Major Murphy, who retired from a U.S. intelligence service quite a few years ago, and remember he's writing in 1979, had seen action in World War II in Italy and also described vividly his investigations in the Caribbean, where he organized efforts to intercept submarines and German spies on their way to the United States. 
he this is me talking he's probably OSS it sounds like what he's describing is office of strategic services but um fully doesn't doesn't say i met him at a gathering of ufo contactees and suggested a drink when it was all over i expressed my surprise at his interest in the event which i had regarded as a complete waste of time he asked me to clarify this judgment and I said that in my opinion, none of the people in attendance knew anything about science. Then he posed a question that, obvious as it seems, had not really occurred to me. What makes you think that UFOs are a scientific problem? I replied with something to the effect that a problem was only scientific in the way it was approached, but he would have none of that, and he began lecturing me. First, he said, Science had certain rules. For example, it has to assume that the phenomenon it is observing is natural in origin rather than artificial, and possibly biased. Now, the UFO phenomenon could be controlled by alien beings. If it is, added the Major, then the study of it doesn't belong in science. It belongs in intelligence, meaning counter-espionage. And that, he pointed out, was his domain. Now, in the field of counterespionage, the rules are completely different. He drew a simple diagram in my notebook. You are a scientist. In science, there is no concept of the price of information. Suppose I gave you 95% of the data concerning a phenomenon. You're happy because you know 95% of the phenomenon. Not so in intelligence. If I get 95% of the data... I know this is the cheap part of the information. I still need the other 5%, but I will have to pay a much higher price to get it. You see, Hitler had 95% of the information about the landing in Normandy, but he had the wrong 95%. We're deep into the danger zone whenever we talk about UFOs, so... Let's leave that subject there. What about deception? Fillet's book was called Messengers of Deception. Let's return to a more worldly kind. This is from Cynthia Grabo, a book called Anticipating Surprise, 2002. This is page 119, chapter 7. The Problem of Deception. Confidence that a study of history and of techniques and principles of indications analysis. She's, she's an, uh, an intelligence analyst, by the way. Uh, confidence that a study of history and of techniques and principles of indications analysis will enable us to come to the right judgment of the adversary's intentions fades as one contemplates the chilling prospect of deception. There is no single facet of the warning problem so unpredictable and yet so potentially damaging in its effects as deception. Nor is confidence in our ability to penetrate the sophisticated deception effort in any way restored by a diligent study of examples. On the contrary, such a study will only reinforce a conclusion that the most brilliant analysis may founder in the face of deception, and that the most expert and experienced among us on occasion may be as vulnerable as the novice. We're into the realm of military deception. 
There's one more source that we should consider before we move on. Uh, Sun Tzu, The Art of Warfare, is a, um, a text from between the 5th and 3rd century BC. This is from the Ames edition, 1993, page 171. Thus only those far-sighted rulers and their superior commanders who can get the most intelligent people as their spies are destined to accomplish great things. Intelligence is of the essence in warfare. It is what the armies depend upon in their every move. That wraps up our initial discussion of our point of departure, intelligence and its three kinds, natural, artificial, and strategic. Next, we'll start by looking more closely at strategic intelligence and the assessment of an undisputed authority on the subject, Director of Central Intelligence in the 60s, Alan, 50s and 60s, Alan Dulles, uh, who in the early 1960s wrote or perhaps helped to write a book on the subject. References uh, are in the will be in the RSS feed, and um, full notes will be on our website for this first segment of Retrace. Our website is retrace.com, R-E-T-R-A-I-C-E dot com, and this is segment number one.